I'm sitting here in my own house, minding my own Welcome to High Camp, where I watch the old gay movies that no one else is talking about. I'm your host, Brian Rucker. And today I have a very special guest on the podcast. She is an artist. She's a writer. Uh, she's a very smart movie buff. Her name is Dynamo. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. It's exciting to have you on. And you have yeah, just like such a wealth of knowledge about movies, but especially old movies that I feel like most of the people in my life don't know what I'm talking about when I'm, I don't know, when I'm talking about things like that. Well, I mean... It's generational to a degree because, um, you know, there's really no reason for me to have seen this and even less reason for you to have seen it. Uh, should we say what the movie is? Or Yeah, let's say, uh, so out of all the 400 movies on this list that Paul Rowan uh, created years ago, you wanted to see The Gang's All Here. Yes, I, I didn't, I don't, I've never even read this book, but I requested it as soon as you said gay camp movie. And it was in there. Yep. It's sort of the quintessential gayest movie of 1940s, um, The Gang's All Here, uh, which is a Busby Berkeley Technicolor musical starring Benny Goodman, Carmen Miranda, and a bunch of people who look like ham. And I think most people, if they, if they know this movie at all, or if they think about the images from this movie, they think of Carmen Miranda yeah, like the moderns, like if you know who Mo- Carmen Miranda is, you were saying this. Like, when did you know who Carmen Miranda was? Well, we, yeah, we were talking about that earlier. I think most, me included, most people in our generation first knew who Carmen Miranda was through Bugs Bunny cartoons, Daffy Duck, all that stuff. Yeah, there's at least like one cartoon where a bunch of fruit gets thrown at Bugs Bunny and then like he emerges and he's like in Carmen Miranda drag with like lipstick. And there's a, there's probably a Daffy Duck one where he turns into Carmen Miranda too. So those would have been contemporary with the movie we saw, The Gang's All Here. So basically, she was a cartoon character immediately. Yeah. And just because, like, the weird 30s and 40s references in Looney Tunes get filtered down to kids watching it in the 80s and 90s. So there's no no kid has ever seen a Carmen Miranda movie, but they know who she is. And now I wonder, like, are kids still even watching those Warner Brothers cartoons when they're growing up? I don't know. Well, I mean, this, I think... Turner owns all of them, right? And Turner owns Cartoon Network, so they may be still showing them. Hopefully. Um, And the weird thing is that I got to know this movie because of Turner Classic Movies launched when I was in high school or or junior high, maybe. And for some reason, this was one of the movies that was in very heavy rotation on early Turner Classic Movies. And I didn't have any friends, and (laughs) I I had absentee parents, so what did I do is I watched... The more terrible a movie was, the more times I saw it on Turner Classic Movies. And they just show a movie like five times a day for like a month. Um, so this was, it was this movie. It was Alexander's Rag, Alexander's Ragtime Band was in heavy rotation. And this really strange uh, Paul Newman movie called A New Kind of Love, which I've never heard anyone say anything about, was for some reason they just showed it over and over again and I watched it every time it was on. So um, this movie's sort of been burned to my memory from an adolescent age. So you were like 11, 12 when you first saw this movie? Um, maybe a little bit older, like junior high age, so okay. like 13. 
Uh, and then in high school, I took a film class and I had a sort of very campy teacher um, who enjoyed showing like upsetting movies to the class. <laughs> and he, he, we watched this in that class as well. So I've seen it an oddly high number of times. That's amazing. I, I, the first time I saw this movie was in New York. Uh, I was taking an improv class taught by you and we watched a bunch of movies and I guess it was playing at Film Forum just randomly at the time. And I think you suggested that I well, go see it. The Film Forum in New York was a revival house, if you're not familiar with it. And they had a, a way of putting up camp movies that would sort of draw a big crowd of elderly gay men. Yes. Uh, so it was sort of, you know, a bit of a time capsule, not just of when the movie was made, but when these guys saw the movie in the 60s and 70s as a camp classic. And now it's like the 2000s and they're, they're pissy old men who are yelling at you for making too much noise in the theater. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's what's great about Film Forum. And like I think we were saying earlier, there's not really an equivalent revival house in L.A. But even the Film Forum in New York, since it's moving to a new location, oh, they sort it? of shifted generationally. So they're not, they're showing more like good movies and less okay. like ridiculous movies. Yeah. And Whereas, I feel like the New Beverly shows just sort of the ridiculous movies and doesn't really show that many good movies. Well, the thing is that L.A. has a really short memory. Hmm. And, and I found this when I was doing like pop culture art shows out here is like the pool of references you can make is so shallow here. It has to be oh, something yeah. from mainstream and from the 80s for the majority of the audience to get that. Whereas there's enough film snobbery in New York that you could reference like a movie from the 40s or something and understand that people would know what the Maltese Falcon was or yeah. know what Casablanca was. And those are pretty mainstream movies, but trying to make a reference to a movie that's black and white before the childhood of your audience, they're just not going to know it. Yeah, and I guess the people out here that wouldn't have that knowledge are mostly like industry professionals or people or critics that have to go see screenings of new movies every night. Yeah, I and mean, so the pool of people that you have that would know that stuff are probably too busy to, to go watch these movies. Like, like remember the movie of the player? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. The, like there's a guy goes to see the bicycle thief, which is pretty, pretty basic. Yeah. For, that's like but, foreign but, movie one one But like, it's considered very uh, unusual that this guy wants to go see the bicycle thief. So, and I think even more, you know, in 2019, that would be like unheard of to find a place that was playing the bicycle thief. Totally. Um, we're such snobs. We're but, such New York snobs, both of <laughs> well, us. Well, that's why they have the Criterion channel now, so we can watch The Bicycle Thief whenever we want it, in the mm. comfort of our own home. Um, all right, so let's talk about the gangs all here. I prepared very little, honestly, for, <laughs> for this because I knew you were going to have a lot of cool stuff to say. Uh, but I want to very briefly go over when this came out in 1943. It was nominated... Only for one Oscar, which I was actually surprised that it was nominated for any Oscars. Can you guess what Oscar it was nominated for? Whatever art direction was called in the Correct. 40s. I think it was just, yeah, called art direction and set decoration or something. Um, and there were two categories back then. There was one for black and white movies and one for color movies. And this was the year, the 44 Oscars was the year that uh, Casablanca won a bunch of stuff. Um, but yeah, that was it. And I guess... That's all that it should be. Well, I don't know. Like, well, I mean, uh, musicals are much more respected back then. Yeah. But even then, this by standards of even the time of musicals, this is a bad musical. Yeah. Well, let's. Okay, so this was Busby Berkeley, who at this time was. Would you say he was at the height of his career, or this was past his prime? Um, well, this was his first Technicolor movie. He made movies starting in the pre-code era, which is the early '30s. 
and he uh, he was doing it for a different studio. Did you know uh, which one? He, well, he was working at Paramount, right? And then, oh, I have no idea. I think it's maybe not. Well, he he was, let's say Warner or MGM Brothers, Warner Brothers or Warner what? Bro- he was working at. But this is the studio system where you were tied to your studio, and he had a short live stage career doing these huge musical numbers. And then um, he came to Hollywood and he basically sort of invented the musical number on film. Um, and he did Gold Diggers of 33, Gold Diggers of 35, Gold Diggers of 38, Dames, Footlight Parade, 42nd Street. So basically sort of invented what's known as like the Busby Berkeley number. But these are all black and white. And the first and half of them were in the pre-code era. So basically there's all kinds of sexual references. There's drunk references. There's drug references. I mean, until they cracked down with the Hayes Code, you could basically put anything you want in a movie. Okay. It and was Warner Brothers, just FYI. Yeah, this uh, this is this is not a well researched like <laughs> expert podcast. You're not going to learn anything from us. And I say everything that we tell you, you should take with a grain of salt because it's probably true, but maybe not. Double check with Wikipedia, you know, or a, a film professor. Yeah. Uh, but um, so this is his first technicolor one. So it's he had peaked. He had become like a megastar during Forty Second Street, which was later made into a Broadway musical with Jerry Orbach in mm-hmm. the '80s. Um, and it's sort of like. Uh, he, everything I know about Busby Berkeley convinces me, armchair psychiatrist that I am, that he's possibly a sociopath and almost definitely on the autism spectrum because he is a very crazy person. Yeah. Well, he, all of his, I mean, his famous choreography are obviously uh, tons of people. Identical. M- identical, moving in sync. And you said while we were watching the movie, He's not even interested in dancing. It's it's just like well the the you know Hollywood Babylon like scuttlebutt is all that like he treated his dancers like shit. He treated like the main actors like shit. He had no respect for other human beings. Yeah. and he would make them dance until their feet bleed. And if they missed it, he he also kept making them do take after take after take because he just he didn't care about people at all in any way. Um, and you know the what I've heard is that he, the only people he respected on the set were the technical guys who made his effects work. He only cared about technicians and he just like didn't even make eye contact with anybody else. Um, and he sort of, he didn't care about plot or story, which is pretty clear in this Very movie. Very clear. He didn't care about human emotion. Um, he just wanted to constantly technically innovate like what he could pull off on film and how complicated the numbers would be and like new effects he could incorporate into them whether it's like neon hoops in this one or like you know combining 2d sets and 3d actors and and you know sweeping camera like he basically was just it's like the way like an autistic kid is about trains is how he is about film technology and he really did push the medium forward it's amazing to watch this and think that it came out in 1943 uh you know the first couple years that u.s was in the world war ii yeah yeah this was the height of the war like i mean the world was in the shitter and this is pure escapism well except it isn't because there's like all these vaguely similar looking army men who, who dropped through we couldn't keep track of who the leading man was because they all looked the same yeah i this is the second time I've seen this movie. You said you've seen this movie dozens of times. Yeah, probably. And neither of us were the plot, clear at all. The plot does not make sense. And the tiny plot there was, we couldn't follow. Yeah, let's try to make a little sense of it for the people listening to this. But yeah, we're not going to do a very good job. But anyway, the, the other thing about oh, Bus- yeah, yeah, yeah. Busby Berkeley is he's a murderer. Oh, let's hear this story. Okay, I, I can't pin this down. Actually, my, 
my teacher from high school told us that he okay. was a murderer. Hey, let's watch this fun musical directed by a murderer. Um, but at the height of his fame, so I'm guessing a couple years before this movie came out, um, he was a, a notorious drunk, and he had like six six wives, I think. Wow. Um, you know, really understands the human condition when you go through that many wives. Um, but he uh, was put on trial for vehicular manslaughter. He killed two people and injured five other ones. So this is like a Matthew Broderick or Halle Berry situation? I have no idea the context. But the thing was, he didn't give a shit that he had killed all these people. He was mostly mad that he couldn't be on schedule with his film. But he was so valuable to the studio is that they had three trials before he got acquitted. And he would basically go to L.A. County Court all day and then shoot all night and then go back to the court Jesus in the morning Christ. because his time was so essential. Yeah. And he needed to get these, like, no one else could do what he could do, so he had to be there for it. But on the other hand, like, he also, even in movies where he's the sole director, he didn't direct any scene where there was no dancing. He's like, human emotion, dialogue, not interested. My assistant will do it. So, yeah, in, in his earlier Warner Brothers movies, he's credited usually just as the choreographer. Or, like, specifically the dance director. The direct. dance director. And then this one was... So was this his first one for 20th Century Fox? Or it's his first time? Well, he was, on, he was on loan to he them. On, oh, he was on loan. And okay. he did it because... This studio had deeper pockets. They could spend a lot more money. They also let him do whatever he wanted, mm-hmm. you know, within the code. And um, and Technicolor was relatively new. I mean, Technicolor sort of only became a thing in 39. Yeah, so. like gone, it was Gone with the Wind, I guess, was the first and giant. And Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz, so. right, right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is a movie that glows. It is so bright yeah. and so colorful. And everybody's dressed bizarrely. Yeah, be- I mean, the costumes are beautiful, uh, and I mean, so iconic, especially we'll you know, Carmen come to Miranda. a Carmen Miranda. Uh, but I mean, the 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 mother character, uh, yeah. I guess it's all the female characters. The male characters are completely interchangeable. Well, it, a lot of them wear uniforms too, yeah. which doesn't help because there's a vague like the male lead is a war hero story that we don't care about. That literally like bisects the movie, and you just see that that classic rollout of like newspaper headlines. Uh, and then you know that he's a war hero. And then right. He back. Like I said, we were not following the no. plot of this very closely, but I don't think the original audience was either. Yeah, let's try to set it up a little bit. Uh, so there's a guy at a nightclub, and... And this is key that in all of Busby Berkeley's musicals, it's all taking qu- place, quote, in a nightclub, even though there's a full-size ship, there's a hundred extras, there's camera movements, there's like an entire city on this nightclub stage. And so, there's there's no differentiation between inside the nightclub and the real no. and the real world. But it's funny that he's trying at least to have an excuse for these musical numbers. So he, he never like breaks the total reality of musical. We're just breaking into. But song. when we went to the polka dot polka, I think we were oh, in okay, another yeah. planet during that one with the hoops. Yeah. So this guy, he's on leave from the army or whatever, he sees this blonde showgirl at a nightclub after we've already met Carmen well, the Miranda. The thing that's sort of key in this yeah. is that the first 10 minutes of this, there's no plot. It's just musical number. We don't know who these people no. are. We don't know where this musical number is taking place. And then when we finally end, like it's like three different musical numbers. There's the Carmen Miranda entrance. There's like a, uh, a partner dance. And, yeah. then there's a, and then there's another singer. So basically, we just get this wall of musical numbers before anything else happens. And then when we finally sort of pan down or pull out and see that we're in this nightclub, which makes no sense, there's suddenly two army guys talking to each other, 
the most like robotically weird like aliens trying to pass as humans dialogue you've ever heard where they're sort of giving exposition but mostly it's just two robots talking to each other in like quippy 1940s yeah very slang. generic very stilted and these scenes were ones that you were saying Busby Berkeley wasn't directing. It well, was usually he would hand off this kind of stuff to his assistant, but I mean, we were saying there's so much physical comedy in this that I think the way that he kept himself interested in all human interactions because he's a robot is he made them do lots of physical comedy where they like tumble around and and like they're constantly repositioning themselves. So I, you know, I you need to be more informed than I am to know how much of a hand he had in this, yeah. but I mean. The dialogue, you'd think this would be sort of the break of normality in a Busby Berkeley movie. is like, oh, a guy has a crush on a girl and they have a dialogue. You'd think, well, anyone could pull that out. But he manages to make it so weird. Yeah, he and can't so even wh- do the simplest, uh, like, yeah, um, boy meets girl Like, the em- emotional exchanges make no sense, which I think maybe to keep himself interested, he had to make it like this even quote, real life off stage is just as stagey and weird as the dance numbers. Yeah. And that, I mean, and I guess anyone who's going to this movie realizes or like is not going to see a love story. Well, the thing is that, I mean, obviously people, the the fact that, you know, studios insisted on having a love story means that somebody wanted them. That's true. But like, even if you look at his earlier movies where um, he has sort of slightly more competent actors, like uh, uh, Jimmy Cagney is in Dames, 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 uh, which is the best title. I mean, he's, I mean, you know, He's a good actor and a good dancer. It was one of the f- first movies he danced in because he okay. was a he was a gangster actor. Sorry, he was a gangster actor, um, but he was also a song and dance man. Yeah. So he he in, did musical numbers for Busby Berkeley, and just his humanity comes through this like ridiculous dialogue. He actually seems like a real person, mm-hmm. whereas there's sort of, I mean, uh, Edward ever oh, so James Edward Ed, Edward Horton, Horton. <laughs> he. I actually really like his his uh, his acting style, the character actor. Um, you might remember him from being the voiceover for, for um, fractured fa- fractured fairy tales on uh, Boinkle. Yeah, and he's uh, in a lot of the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies. He's always the the gay best friend or the well, rival, the employer. It's like I mean, we're stepping on other movies, yeah. but I was telling you that. Um, Fred Astaire was the studio was so concerned that he was coming across as effeminate that they loaded his movies with the campus character actors they had on the roster. So you get Hans Conried and you get Eric Bloor. So basically, if you watch a Fred Astaire movie, you know he's he's a he's a slight man yeah. who dances, and he's not effeminate, but he's not particularly masculine. Yeah. I guess so com- so basically, by comparison, yeah. they had to load up these like sissies like preening around him to a ridiculous degree. And it sort of, I mean, I guess it made sense in 1940, whatever. Sure. And Um, in this movie, Edward Everett Horton is, so he's the father of the... Half of the couple. Half of the couple, basically. Yeah. And he he, gets in trouble from his wife by appearing at this nightclub and dancing with Carmen Miranda, which ends up being in the... Yeah, there's a paparazzi shot of him at this nightclub. But then it turns out that his wife used to be a cabaret star in the the 20s. Like, there's not a lot of logic here. Yeah, we we probably should just stop talking about the plot because it makes no sense. Okay, and the and the 
the father of the other half of the couple. We were never quite clear on who was whose father here. Yeah, I thought the love interests were literally brother and sister for two thirds of the well, there movie. Well, there was a sister, but there also was a love interest who looked very similar. Oh, the two brunettes were two different. Yeah, there were okay, two different well, brunettes. <laughs> and then there's Carmen Miranda. Yes, and then the blonde, who is nominally the, the leading lady of the movie. She just pouts a lot. Yeah, so her name's Alice Faye. I guess she must have been a big star for 20th Century Fox. She's, to me, she looks like exactly like Lucille Ball. Well, she has a 40s face, yeah. you said. Like everyone in the 40s sort of had the same face. And it's just the way they were styled. They just look very similar to yeah, each other. Yeah, big hair, uh, pouty lips. Strong st- jaw. Strong jaw, strong chin. They're sort of masculinized, big shoulders. Yeah. And yeah, I, they're little women, but they're, they're um, their but, features are... are uh, not grotesque. That's too, no, not too grotesque. big of a word, but but enhanced. They look well. They just the the look of it is sort of this aggressive masculine thing because yeah. it's the war is on and we got to have big shoulders and be strong at the front or whatever. Yeah. Um, there's no fading flowers here, and like even the comic relief is kind of a horsey woman. Yeah. The, the mom. Oh, the mom. She's great too. But uh, so let's talk about let's talk about Carmen Miranda. Yeah. Because she, I think she's why this movie is remembered. Yeah. I today. mean, the thing is, I mean. Bug, uh, Bugs Bunny aside, the this is basically why people would have known who Carmen Miranda was. This is the first movie where she wears a lot of fruit on her head. When you think of a Carmen Miranda hat, you think of like that bowl of fruit on her head, but very few of her costumes have fruit on her head. Yeah, even in this movie, it's just the one number. It's the... Well, she has like dozens of insane costumes, yeah. but the, the number is um, the lady in the tutti fruity hat uh, where she sings covered in strawberries and bananas. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a nightclub number. Because this is her second, she sings that Brazil song at the beginning. Yeah, that, that's the other sort of thing that's become more ironic as time's gone is the main song from Terry Gilliam's Brazil is the opening number of this movie as well, which yeah, you haven't I, seen. I've never seen that movie. I know it's and embarrassing. That, that is, it's not a campy movie. It, no. it represents like an escapism in mm-hmm. that film, which is a dystopian science yeah. fiction. And, you know, the, the movie has nothing to do with Brazil. It has to do with escapism. Uh, yeah, I need to, I need to catch up on that. But not on this podcast, because it's not camp. Not on the list. So Carmen Miranda, her acting style, I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, it is completely cartoonish. It's cartoonish. It's vaudevillian. I mean, the thing that's weird about Carmen Miranda is, um, she made very few movies. So she basically was sort of like a big star for like maybe five years and then vanished. Which is crazy because even if people can't name one of her movies, I feel like, I don't know, I don't know if people would even be able to like pick her out out of a lineup they probably would or but everyone recognizes that name at least and and the fruit hat and the fruit hat yeah um, and so many of these bigger like alice Fay, i'm sure was a bigger star than carmen miranda but she was just generic generic pretty, and no one yeah. would know who she is now but the weird thing and then, and then like um and we were t- the weird thing about carmen miranda is basically her career was a political move it was part of the good neighbor policy in the 40s yeah so yeah explain that a little bit okay so um uh, and, and if you're a younger person, you may remember the, the Disney's Saludos Amigos uh, film, which had Jose Caroca and that chicken. Yeah, and then they had the three caballeros right after those two yeah, movies th- those, came out. Those three, yeah, they're together. Um, so it was part of a government program that like the studios bought into and supported, where during World War II, America was really worried that South America would come in on the side of the Nazis because um, South America wasn't in the war yet. And they tried to like say we're we're good neighbors we're we're together forget about you know how we've been ruining your country since the 19th century, and sort of Carmen Miranda was a human good neighbor ambassador, so she was promoted uh, and 
Latin culture was promoted and South American culture was promoted. She's Brazilian, but as the 40s went on and as the war went on, she just became a generic stand-in for all of Latin America, and they sort of make her less specifically Brazilian in the later roles. Mm -hmm. Uh, Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, later, I mean, she obviously plays these very stereotypically, like you said, at first Brazilian and then just sort of generic Latin roles, but you think of the stereotype of a Latin woman uh, in Hollywood, and I feel like later a lot of that has to do with her sexuality. Carmen Miranda has no sexuality. Yeah, she's a sidekick and she's a comic, so she's like... Basically, she's Chico Marx, but Latin. So she messes up English and she says yeah. funny yeah, things. Yeah, it's all she, that Rick, like Ricky Ricardo jokes. And she like of. bugs her eyes and like, you know, the thing about her is like she's not young. She's not particularly attractive. She's not a good dancer. She's an okay singer. She's sort of just there to represent Latin America yeah. in a really weird in way. A, in a friendly, non-threatening. But, non- non-sexual. But patronizing. Non-villainous. I mean, it's sort of weirdly like Latin face. Absolutely. Well, and we were talking a little bit before... She's Brazilian, and I think you said Brazilian so, uh, Bahia, ra- Bahia, and the the racial. Um, well, the the Carmen Miranda silhouette, um, which is a sort of a turban, headpiece, cropped shirt, and then like long skirt, usually with big earrings. Um, I had a Dover um, Tom Tierney uh, paper doll book when I was a kid or my parents did, I guess. And so my first exposure to Carmen Miranda were in these paper dolls, which had a little bio of her in it and had all of the costumes from every movie she did in the studio era, and you could sort of put them wow. on. Like, Tom Tierney is very camp as well. If you end up, you know, veering into paper dolls, that this would that would work on the show. <laughs> but they're the kind of paper dolls that, like, museums sell of, like, George Washington and Barack Obama and his yeah. family and whatever. He's a very, like, classy style, but he did a lot of, when he started out, he was doing stuff for a gay audience that okay. was kind of graphic. You actually have a Yeah, a I guess gay... John, my husband, must have it. I had no idea that we had it, but I guess we do. Well, I mean, paper dolls are very gay, but that's a different are discussion. They? <laughs> yeah, they yeah. Um, but um, so I had this Carmen Miranda paper, and it said in the introduction is that that silhouette that she, that all of her costumes, it's always an exposed misriff, it's always a turban, is what fruit sellers in Bahia would mm. wear. It's like the traditional outfit, but glamorized and like yeah. Hollywoodized to be like glam- sparkly and covered in jewels or whatever. But the silhouette is, is, which I assume she came up with in her nightclub act before she went to the movies would be recognizable as archetypically Brazilian. Yeah, but I mean, we would, or I would think of her when I look at her as basically a white person. Well, this, I mean... Yeah, racial dynamics in Brazil are different than they are here. So I just wonder, like, in that context, is she appropriating from a culture that she's not part of? Is she doing, like, the Brazilian version of minstrelsy for a Brazilian audience before she was in Hollywood? The style of comedy she's doing is very minstrel. It's, it's, you know, comic relief Latino. But I think, like, blackface was was considered, like, normal then. So if they yeah. wanted to have her in blackface, they would have put sure. her in blackface. Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking, like, if a lighter-skinned Brazilian was doing a similar act today, would that be offensive? Like, wh- is, I think, is that... I think that's for the Brazilians. Yeah, well, right. Like, yeah, we're, we're, yeah. we're culturally out of our depth Yeah, I guess here. I'm um, putting, yeah, our own but cultural that's, baggage But I mean, that... that also connects to the larger world of camp. So this, you're you're basing your entire podcast on this book that was written in the first volume came out in 1994, the second one in 1997. But all the movies are from before 1994, and it, except there, John Waters. Well, cry, 
Crybaby. Oh, I think Cereal Mom is the last Cereal one Mom. in there, which was '94. And granted, I'm. This is like a jumping-off point that I want to that um, because I read these books, and this is all from one person. So this is not like uh, indicative of camp in general necessarily. But, but, but what I was gonna say is like sort of ever since the Met Gala, people have been talking about what yeah. is camp? How do you define camp? How do you define camp in the 21st century? Because the original definition of camp, you know, going back to the notes on camp essay, is a phenomenon of a baby boomer generation. Mm-hmm. Like it's um, men, mostly gay men, some college students who in the late 60s and 70s were like looking at 40s films of the new eye and seeing the gay subtext and seeing the, um, you know, just the weirdness of it and ex- and enjoying it for being proto-psychedelia yeah. or whatever, whereas you're not a baby boomer, obviously. I don't think so. Um, and an, I'm a cusp. I'm. I'm. Well, you're Gen X, Gen well, Y cusp. Well, Gen X, Gen Y cusp. Yeah. But I spent my teen years pretending that I was in my thirties. So okay. I'm. I'm way in in interests. I'm more uh, Gen Xy. Yeah. And a lot of Gen X culture was directly confrontational to Boomer culture, including mm-hmm. Boomer subcultures like camp. So a Gen Xer understands camp with irony whereas camp in itself does not have to be ironic that's interesting so do you think the like a gen x like just say typical gen x gay man grew up with some disdain for the camp icons of the previous generation yeah it was sort of sort of hacky and sort of like lame to enjoy enjoy camp films would seem as sort of an old person thing to do well and also like late baby boomer gen x was the height of the aids epidemic so maybe there was a yeah, lot of quite time a lot of for, them were, were just not yeah. there but you know i think the trickle down of camp in the 90s is you start to get like the spencer gifts version of camp where uh-huh. it's like a a 1950s housewife and she's saying like i love marijuana or something like that like it's kind of boneheaded totally so it campus no longer requires you to be sort of sophisticated it's like dumbed down for idiots yeah it's just a like a sort of nostalgic picture with some sort of ribald comment or some, like, some juxtaposition. It was, yeah, you couldn't just enjoy the camp. You had to put yeah. your, you had to make it ironic by sticking something irreverent on it or something. Whereas camp is just sort of, you embodied how crazy this was. Yeah. And I think, I mean, reading Paul Rowan's book, he, I guess he's an old baby boomer. I think he will now, if he's alive, I think he's alive, but he would be about 80. So I guess he's even older than the baby boomers. Well, usually, the, I mean, if he's doing scholarship, his audience would be baby boomers, yeah, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, so it's just weird is that ne- we're now in like, I don't know, the third generation of camp. We're three generations removed from from appreciating it. So what camp is, is going to shift over time. Like if you look at the notes on camp, the things that she defines as being camp are things you've never heard of. Like huh. not even in an ironic context, not in a camp yeah. context. So I mean, I, I'm not a scholar, but if you look to this, I think it's sort of like nostalgia for your parents' childhood becomes camp. So when I was uh, in high school, I had a ton of 50s and 60s stuff, which is when my parents were in high uh-huh. school. And um, sort of the, the my camp opus, remember, I'm pretending to be slightly older than I am, was, um, was all stuff from their childhood. How do you, how did you, like, were, did they share, did your parents share with you stuff from their childhood? Or oh, no, you, they, they hated it. They, they rolled their eyes at it. Yeah, because I, I don't even, I don't remember my parents really going into depth about anything, uh, any, like, TV shows or 
I guess I Love Lucy was one that my mom shared with me, but I, I don't remember knowing anything about well, my parents' sort of childhood. Obsessing over reruns is a Gen X thing, yeah, I think, because yeah. reruns are a phenomenon of their youth in the 70s. Totally. Well, because it was in syndication before yeah. that. And I grew up with um, Nick at Night in the 90s. Yeah. So I think it, yeah, it lasted through my generation. But now I don't. But no the one. weird thing is that baby boomers still are dominating pop culture, even though mm. now they're all elderly. They sort of, they're the generation that won't let go of pop culture, which is why I think so much of Gen X stuff, like The Simpsons was marketed as, this family ain't the Cleavers, they're going to blow it up. It always was in opposition to a baby boomer ideal. And that's sort of a lot of Gen X is like sneering at the dominant pop culture that they grew up with. Yeah. Because it wasn't theirs. So now we're even further removed and it we're, you know, the children of baby boomers and and uh, uh, millennials who are sort of even younger trying to, how do they work with the parameters of camp established by their grandparents, parents? Yeah, and that, that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is because I feel like I, I, I'm on the cusp. I was born in the very end of 1981 and I feel like I know a, f- a little bit about some of these baby boomer camp icons, but I talked to guys in their early thirties or late twenties and there's no frame of reference. And part of me is like, well, am I just smart? I know this stuff. Or I'm like, Oh no, this is obsessive. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it's also like, you know, camp is created in a very homophobic era when you're, Mm -hmm. you're a subculture, you're, you're bounded together by being an outcast and sort of glomming onto this, is, is a specialty interest. Like camp is not mainstream, but if camp becomes mainstream, is it still camp? Yeah. And now why well, I, I just come to the, the rise of RuPaul's drag race, it seems like su- a part of, right. A part of gay culture that now well, has been totally mainstream. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's RuPaul's drag race is sort of bringing a lot of things that were underground suddenly to a mass audience yeah. that would have no way of knowing things. To a real mass audience. Because yeah. you think of, you know, Madonna has uh, homages to gay culture or even Lady Gaga <laughs> 10 years ago. Or appropriation. Appropriate. Well, it's all, yeah, appropriation. But, the yeah, what, and some of the, you know, the queens on RuPaul's Drag Race have have some knowledge. And I think RuPaul. Some of, some of them are dumb and don't some know them, anything. Yeah. No, yeah. and it, it's fine. Like, everyone has their own frame <laughs> of reference and their own generation. But yeah, I wonder, like, Will there be another sort of revival of this this classic Hollywood generation of camp, or is it or what, is it truly being lost? Or what is the next level? Yeah. Of, where is camp coming from now? So if you if the camp of the baby boomers was being defined in the sixties and seventies, looking at movies mostly from the forties, so that's you know looking back thirty years. Look back thirty years from here, and we are in. The late nineties. Late night. Well, so I and I think and I don't think this has anything to do with with gay camp, but I feel like young young millennials in their twenties have this nostalgia for like Full right. House. Well, uh, they're they're it's their own childhood, but it's also like twenty year olds now are dressing the way I dressed when I was sixteen. So totally. there's a lot of Dr. Martin boots and there's lots of um, flannel. It's sort of grunge grunge yeah. minstrelry. But is that is that camp or is that just nostalgia? Well, the thing is that we're on a cycle now where sort of every 30 years something will come back and and it keeps happening and it, maybe it's because people lack ideas <laughs> there's no yeah, I think there's nothing nothing new but this idea that things will always come back in this cycle is it nostalgia is it camp i mean it, it's um the thing that's that that's stirring a wedge in it for me is for understanding camp is i don't think camp can be 
snarky. It can't be ironic. It has to be appreciative in a way. I think so. Um, whereas Gen Xers were all about ironically liking stuff or like hate watching. Mm-hmm. I mean, which isn't part of the camp lexicon. So can camp exist, coexist with irony? Yeah, well, I think the, the, the baby boom idea of camp, especially coming from a gay male perspective, is they were sincerely enjoying stuff in a way that other people in their generation, I mean, you know, these, let's say baby boomer gay guys came of age with the hippies. And I don't think there is a more homophobic subculture <laughs> than the hippies. Yeah, you'd be surprised. But the, well, thing, yeah. the other thing I think is sort of a big key thing to gay camp specifically is they're always seeing themselves in the female role. Mm-hmm. It's always, it's appropriating girl stuff. Um, but no, like they, you know, drag queens are modeled on, you know, uh, screen sirens yeah, from the, the 40s. Yeah, hyper-feminization. Yeah, it's, and it's, but it's always like, um, and paper dolls and like playing, like a lot of early gay culture comes to do with like what they used to call a sissy. It's basically liking girl things when yeah. you're a kid. And so a lot of this sort of, establishing camp stuff is playing the female role for a male gay audience. Yeah. So you're stealing our culture is what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. Well, um, everyone steals from everyone, <laughs> but, and, and that's like a big, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there are obviously arguments that drag is misogynist. I think some drag is misogynist and some camp like, cause a lot of these female roles were written by gay men and they're not what you would think of as... A and tr- also, the studio era was the last time that, like, female stars really had the power. Yeah. So that's why there are so many juicy female roles, whether you have, like, Mildred Pierce and, like, All About Eve, is these these real scenery-chewing, very feminine but leading women. They're not written for the male gaze, which I think is why, um, why sort of that strong female character who's sort of bucking the demure, submissive woman is why it's sort of... Gay men tend to like these sort of strong female roles, and women presumably like these strong female roles. Like that, the '40s was like the last era you had those kind of powerful women. Yeah, I think even that. So the gangs all here came out in 1943. I feel like even by then, the big stars of the '30s, like Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, Barbara Stanwyck, they were being replaced by a newer, like sexier generation. People yeah. like Alice Faye or Rita Hayworth, and I feel like we were already losing um, the but, individualism I mean, of those female stars but, by this but, time. But even when we're looking at noirs in like the 40s and 50s, they're still powerful women. That's there, true. there may be a male lead, but they're still sort of pulling the strings if it's movies like Gilda yeah. or in Double Indemnity, like the femme fatale is, is a noir staple. So you still have strong, maybe not as strong, but you still have strong female yeah. roles. But the, that strength was always coupled in, in noir usually with like a sexuality and a male and, gaze and evil and evil. Yeah. 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 That's why uh, you're fatal. But yeah, I feel like in the thirties and early forties, there were these women's pictures, these sure, melodramas. Sure. And then I guess it came back with like Douglas but, Sirk. But the stuff. thing is, but by the time we're after the war, it's the fifties. It's always women being cursed for being too strong yeah. in those Douglas Sirk ones, which is where Todd Haynes picks up yeah. and his pastiches of them. So, even though we have female stars today, they're never like commanding the movie the way they were in old Hollywood. Yeah, very rarely, especially in America. I always think of like a French movie, like Isabelle Huppert or Juliette Binoche will sometimes get those roles. But the thing is, but they're, the directors are all misogynists That's, who oh my God. treat them terrible behind the scenes. Well, yeah, and they 
they will defend them. I mean, don't don't talk to an older French actress about Me Too. <laughs> yeah, it's just the way things were. But yeah. the other thing I wanted to say is, can there be, is there a camp for straight people or does camp require that it be gay? Well, I guess it depends on the definition of camp. Because like I was saying, that nost- that millennial nostalgia for like the Saved by the Bell pop-up restaurant yeah. stuff like that is so part of i mean i love to say by the bell but that's part of straight culture i don't think of and that. it's also part of mainstream i mean those, yeah. those, that attitude of like nostalgia for your childhood is so mainstream yeah, Does not, it, i don't even think that could be considered camp it's just nostalgia well now i mean as gay kids thank god are being able to like come out younger and younger and be accepted by mainstream society yeah maybe there but they're won't. but they're sort of losing the secret club. Status. Yeah, and I think that that's been an argument among like within the gay community for a couple of generations. Because I think even like in the Victorian era, yeah, people were nostalgic for that because you could you know pass you have a different color hanky and you would know if you were yeah. a top or a bottom. And but the difficulty, I mean, the thing is, they there is sort of a false alliance of being oppressed or they're. There's no reason two gay people should be friends just because they're gay. Well, yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> but exactly. But if you were uh, in the closet and in hiding, maybe that would be the bond that brings you together. We've yeah. both suffered this closet. So, I mean, I think as it, the closet disappears, you're sort of realizing there's not one right way to be gay. So there's no longer a mono-gay camp culture because every, because it's just culture now. Yeah, and gay, everyone... I mean, there's a like mainstream, like gay culture is becoming mainstream, but then culture is also being so fractured that who knows in a generation if because of like Netflix and you, there's 10,000 shows to watch. Will anyone have the same references as each other in 20 years? I don't want to, I mean, I'm not belittling gay culture, but the weird thing is that nerd culture has taken a really weird turn. Yeah. And the reason I bring up like straight camp is I was a big mystery science theater fan when I was in high school. And that sort of informed that kind of Gen X, snarky, ironic mocking of like cult films. Yeah, watching, like hate watching movies, movies that are so bad they're good. Or like collecting thrift store records that are awful or wearing vintage clothes that look really unflattering. Like a whole, there's this whole, there's this wave that just doesn't exist anymore and it's hard to explain to millennials where irony was just like the way where you never said anything that wasn't sarcastic yeah. you hated everything and it, it's very hard to shake that off I still have a big part of no myself. and I think I mean I'm like a little younger than that but I still I think those were like my idols as a little kid was you know watching Heather's or or even like Daria which was <sighs> see that was pro- to you that was probably cheesy to me she was like my queen. Yeah, I was like, like I, I was compared. I got interviewed for one of the Mad Men things, and I was described as looking like Daria. Oh and I was like, I thought I escaped this twenty <laughs> years ago, but it keeps happening. But I think yeah, if you're if you're just like a couple years too old for some pop culture thing, you're gonna think yeah, it's Daria was like the sellout version yeah, yeah, of no. our culture. But like, what I was gonna say is not even t- counting like there's the Gen X like cool ironic like punk rock dudes but there also were the nerd culture of the 90s this is like very early internet where you'd like meet on message boards or Mm. meet on like aol with your dial-up computer and like trade vhs tapes through the mail of like movies that were hard to get um my parents recently like moved and i had to go back to my the house where all my stuff was and then throw it all out and i had to throw out about 300 mystery science theater (laughs) vhs's just i had just accrued so many and even looking at my record, my record and CD collection, it's all albums I bought because I thought they were funny, not because I liked them. And um, sort of 
there was super sincere nerd culture, which was kind of square, like, yeah. you know, people who really, who wrote fan fiction of Star Trek. Okay. But then there was also this, the sarcastic, this is what I'm calling straight camp is cult movie people and ironic watchers. But that, because um, of the internet making everything available, like there's no culture that bo- that's bonded together over VHS tapes and 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 uh, message boards because it's just mainstream now. Yeah, it's too easy to get them. So, in that way, I don't think like that culture doesn't exist anymore either. And it's not a it's not a gay thing. It's just the culture has fractionalized. Yeah, because I I mean I remember it's funny because I remember Mystery Science Theater being on when I was a kid and I always skipped over it. Like I would watch reruns of SNL on Comedy Central or whatever. Because it was because it was too nerdy. Yeah, it was. But I like I'm I'm such a movie person, and I like I don't know. I, there's you know quote unquote bad movies. I like that stuff. But for some reason, maybe yeah, it it was so straight, or I felt I just felt totally isolated from that part of nerd well, culture. The thing that I that sort of looking back, and the thing that sort of made me gave me pause is I don't like how parts of camp and parts of even nerd camp. I went to a nerd camp, so this is very strange. <laughs> My first one-man show was about going to nerd camp. But um, the, the problem I have with this, I don't like punching down. Yeah. And I think when your whole joke is, ha, 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 people in the past were terrible. This movie's bad. The the filmmaker didn't have any money. Ha, ha, punch, punch. Like, that's, you're just sort of, what's the point? Because they can't, def- the movie can't defend itself. Yeah. And, I mean, there's sort of, do you need to, are you so insecure that you need to feel superior by punching a movie that's 40 years old? And there are, I mean, there's things to laugh at and things to laugh about. And occasionally like the room, I maybe because Tommy was so, it seems like such a crazy asshole that I don't, well, the thing is that he's gotten rich. You know, when when we go to cult movies, post age of irony, you end up having, it, it ends up feeling like you're sort of picking on someone who's mentally handicapped yeah like the only true non-self-aware camp type stuff like the room tends to be made by mentally ill people mentally ill people that it's outsider art yeah and i think i love like outsider art i I guess i was sort of introduced to do you know the movie pecker the john waters yeah like i that came out when i was a teenager and i had never heard of um diane arbus or or cindy sherman they're not outsider art. No, artists, they're mainstream. But they're. But I think I, uh, that sort of led me to um, to like more alternative art and uh, Henry Darger and. Well, that's the the thing is that um, on outsider art, the original definition was isolated rural communities, uh-huh. self taught artists. But as everyone's as you know, there was no longer these isolated pockets. They couldn't find people who were completely naive of the world. So outsider art shifted to mean mentally ill artists. Yeah. So there's um, Harvey uh, uh, Darger's one, but like there's another, there's, a, um, there's an autistic savant who does incredibly detailed grids of, of, of um, categories of birds and categories of tools. So outsider art, in, in so much as it still exists now, it tends to be people who are not isolated by geography or from culture, but in their own minds. Wow. Yeah, because there's really no such thing as being isolated geographically. Well, anymore. there's like one pocket of yeah. uh, tribesmen in Borneo, but like. So then you're now, if you're into outsider art, you're basically just taking advantage of mentally. Well, Ill well that's the thing is like um, with Wesley. Do you remember Wesley Willis? I don't know. So Wesley Willis is a was a uh, very large, heavy black man who was schizophrenic, who 
became beloved of the indie rock scene and started releasing albums oh. through Alternative Tentacles, which is Jello Biafra of Dead Kennedy's album. And he actually toured with a metal band. And he wrote these songs, and he was sometimes he was homeless and sometimes he wasn't, but he was very upfront that he was schizophrenic. And there was always this sort of uncomfortableness where he'd go to a rock club and he's, you know, a middle-aged, semi-homeless, black, <laughs> schizophrenic man. His songs are hilarious, by yeah. the way. But the question is, how aware was he? How aware of his celebrity was he? Because for the first time in his life, he was making money. He was touring it, people looking after him. He wasn't homeless. But then he'd be going to these rock clubs, and it's all these 20 white hipster dudes watching this. You know, are they, are they mocking him by liking him, or do they like him? Yeah. And I'm sure the people in those audiences probably wouldn't even be able to give you a straight answer yeah, whether it was because, mocking or... Because of irony. You yeah. don't know if you actually like something or not. Because uh, you, you were saying, we were just talking about whatever watching the movie, and you were saying you're ha- you have trouble sometimes even I- yeah. enjoying anything, like, yeah, I don't like, ironically. I mean, I, I'm an outsider artist, and that fact <laughs> is I'm not very in touch with whether I like stuff or not. But that's my issue. That's, that's beyond this podcast. No, I get... Well, I feel like if you're any sort of have any sort of like edge as a teenager or you consider yourself an outsider in any number of ways, um, you, you might come to appreciate things semi-ironically. But, but you also might like just warp your mind so you can't actually yeah. like anything because your, your brain's still forming when you're a teenager. So, you know, I have a very hard time watching anything just for pleasure. It's always has to be in my mind sort it is to either research for a future project or sort of ironic liking it. So, like, as, I don't know, as a teenager, or maybe it was our generation, you're, you're taught or you have some defense mechanism where you can't really appreciate. Yeah, because, because liking something is a vulnerability. Yeah. You're opening, you're admitting, like, if this is something I like and you're sort of, and that's why, like, fandoms are so, like, tight, is that you've bonded over this thing that you both like, so you're both vulnerable mm-hmm. to the same stimulus. And if you do deeply, deeply like something, if you let someone in to that and they don't share like it or, can or they be mock, pers- or they they mock, mock yeah. you well the thing is i was saying that in the japanese fandom there's a term moe it's usually transcribed in english like my last name moe okay and the original meaning of it it means uh it's the f- the the protective feeling you have when you see an anime character you like mm. because you know you 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 want to protect it and so when you have it's since taken on like a weird porno meaning, but like <laughs> the original meaning of it is this sort of like feeling of warmth you have towards a character that you that you want to protect them. And I think when you get a really sort of particularly corny, tragic, sort of awkward movie like this, you kind of want to protect it by by loving it, even though you know it's terrible. Yeah. Well, and to bring it back to the gang's all here, which <laughs> we haven't talked about in about half an hour, which is great. I, I don't think it is a bad movie. Like there's, I mean, the, the, the love story part is very generic. Like the leading actors are not very charismatic. As, as long as you, they don't act like human beings. Yeah. They act like weird cartoon people. But it, for the era, I mean, and again, like I, I in no way have comprehensive knowledge of, of this era of musical film. Yeah, but listen to a different podcast. Yeah, exactly. But it, it seems like Busby Berkeley in The Gang's All Here goes so far just visually more than yeah. anyone else. Like this movie, especially, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the, the last 15 minutes, which 
I mean, I can only compare to like 2001 A Space Odyssey yeah, and it's, it's like abstraction. The, it's sort of the 2001 of musicals. Yeah. It, I mean, you see these these disembodied heads. You see the, this this chorus of of women in in blue bodysuits. They're almost like burkas. Yeah, they are like burkas holding these these neon circles. Yeah. Um, and, and they're just moving very slowly into in yeah. cycles. And like the plot literally just ends. They're like, oh, well, I'm going to marry this person. Okay, that's cool. We'll see you later. And then it's just 15 minutes So, of so just like how it's sort of mirroring the first half where you get like three musical numbers with no context. Yeah. In the end, we suddenly have like 10 musical numbers with no context. It's pretty clear where his interests lie. And they were not in this cast. They were no. in the musical numbers. And like had, has, do you know if he's worked with Carmen Miranda again? Or is this the one time that they worked mm-hmm. together? Because now I, I'm curious to see because this seems like the iconic Carmen Miranda performance, but like what are her other movies like in comparison with it? Like she's obviously the same persona. Well, the thing is that like, um, you know, as an ambassador of the good neighbor program, she sort of wasn't useful after about five years and just vanished. Yeah. Did she go back to Brazil? No, she sort of became a drunk and was like in a paparazzi sting where she didn't have underpants on or, I mean, read read Hollywood Babylon to get the real story. But basically she went into deep decline as the war ended because they didn't need her anymore. Yeah. And so she self-financed, a movie with Abbott and Costello who were also on the way out. Right. So she sort of had the ignominious end that most camp icons have yeah. where she just sort of faded away. And that seems like most, uh, especially actresses in that era, I always think like Hedy Lamar. I mean, she lasted for longer, but she was a drunk for the last 20 years of her life. And Busby Berkeley was a drunk. And yeah, like, I guess everyone was. Basically, you know, you either were a drunk, were closeted, were on drugs. I mean, it was a rough life. Nothing's changed. Way oh, hey oh, hey oh. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, as far as it, judging it away from campish merits, it's a bad movie. I guess. I, I still think that there are so many, like, technical achievements in it that even devoid of... Well, I don't know how you could watch this devoid of, like, a camp lens. Yeah. But I, th- there, it seems to be there's so many things in it to just appreciate on, like, a pure technical level apart and, from the camp and, interest. And because he was uh, probably on the autism spectrum, yeah. that's how he directed it. He yeah. wanted it to be topping himself constantly in the technical end. I mean, he would have been a great experimental filmmaker should he have gone there and he'd be like up there with, you know, in the MoMA. But uh, in terms of like the things you expect from a film, like a plot and emotional investment, not, not there. Yeah. And I guess maybe that's how you have to, if you're appreciating this movie, how you have to think of it as like this uh, experimental movie, more just about the images than I mean, because the plot is, and we've said this before, like so perfunctory. Any 10-year-old who's like, oh, what's the plot of a musical? That's what it is. He's going away. He goes to war. He comes back. There's two fiancés. There's hijinks, and that's it. Yeah, but who cares? But who, Yeah, who cares? Um, uh, but the thing is that you, if you were taking the camp away, you'd have to take it as an experimental you know, music psychedelia thing. Mm-hmm. But because of camp, it is a camp icon. And it, it it sort of still is, maybe just for an older generation, yeah. that it represents the 40s, it represents Carmen Miranda, it represents Bug Bunny dresses Carmen Miranda. Yeah. Like, it's it's iconic. When even then, there was a nostalgia baked into the movie. There's two scenes. There's when the mother of one of the main characters finds out that, like, the director of the nightclub, they were old vaudeville partners in the 20s in, in Paris. Paris. So there's this 20s nostalgia. And then there's this... 18, 1880s nostalgia. There's a, yeah, it's a musical number with children in like 
1880s. Yeah, it, the polka, garb. the polka dot polka. And that's that's the f- first part of the last like yeah. uh, act of the movie, I guess. So these children appear out of nowhere, all dressed in 1880s garb, doing a polka as our leading lady serenades them, which then transitions to the glowing hula hoops yeah. psychedelic number and then transitions into floating heads in outer space. Oh, because I guess they're, they're saying in that song, like, the polka is over, but now we have the polka dot. Yeah. But, like, who in 1943 would even be nostalgic for the 1880s? Just the oldest people. Well, the thing is, it would have to be secondhand nostalgia so, of yeah. people who didn't live through 1880s but had, like, kitsch from 1880. Yeah, so it'd be, like, mounting a production of Grease now. Yeah. Or even, I guess, even earlier than that. So, I mean, there's a a constant nostalgia for things you didn't live through in in camp stuff. Like, I didn't live through the 60s, but I ended up becoming a weird expert on the 60s enough to work for Mad Men. So, like... Yeah, and your art... I feel like your art style is very heavily influenced by 60s. Intentional. Yeah, yeah. Intentional. So, I mean, I think being nostalgic for an era you didn't live through is a lot easier than being nostalgic for something that you had, like, real-life experiences during. Yeah. And I guess that's still... I mean, like you said, that's uh, these 16-year-olds that are dressing like it's 1994 or whatever. Yeah. It's it's just this endless cycle. But that's so interesting. Yeah, the relationship between nostalgia and camp. And can there, can there be camp, like... Can something that is produced in 2019 instantly be camp or does is there a waiting period? Well, that gets it into like, is camp intentional or is camp naive? And I think there's both, there has to be Yeah, they, I mean, people have argued like the people argue that there's camp that becomes camp after the fact it wasn't intended yeah. to be, but then there's also things like John Waters or um, where he's making something intentionally campy. For sure. Do you think Busby Berkeley was the former or the latter? I think, I and I, I know it's terrible to psychologically analyze someone when you don't have the full information, <laughs> but I swear he is a mentally ill yeah. outsider artist. I don't think he was aware of very much. Yeah. And like, I mean, you'll never know, but, but trying to, uh, to go back to like 1943 and being, whether you're, you know, a gay man watching that movie or a straight person, what are, are you feeling those can't be like, do you, do you have those same campy it's this, aesthetics? This is this in, weird combination of hating it and loving yeah. it at the same time or feeling protective because you know it's terrible. Like that's that's why I brought up Moe's. I definitely find myself watching a show and it's like, I don't know whether I hate this or love this, but I'm watching it. You know, it, it, it the emotions are kind of mingled. Yeah. Well, and um, like we were going saying earlier about growing up and, and everything is draped in uh, irony. Now I feel like, um, we're at the other extreme where oh, yeah. any, uh, like any confession of, Oh, I, I like this. Ironically, people are like, um, you're a bad person. Yeah, and it's be basically the new sincerity movement yeah. started after nine 11. Okay. Um, I wrote a book about hipsters. So I ended oh, yeah. up reading a lot about millennial culture and, um, and post millennial. And basically the idea of selling out doesn't exist at all in this generation. No. Whereas that was like the fundamental thing is you had to be true to yourself, but also ironically hating everything. Whereas uh, accepting a corporate sponsorship or becoming an influencer is considered a good thing, which would be, it would be such a life ruiner. Yeah, it would be anathema to Gen X. But now I think it was like, I want to say maybe post 9-11, but post Moby, I always think of it as there, because it's so hard for any artist, especially a musician to make a living through just touring and selling albums. There's just no question. Like, of course, if Toyota wants to use my song, 
I, I there's there's no but but even in the in the performance, like I I recently saw this a millennial and late post millennial thing is like being very vulnerable. Yeah. And this guy he was doing stand up, but basically all he did was come out as trans. That was his entire act, wow. and the audience went nuts. Sure. They loved him, and I was like, so. So vulnerability is just so embraced by this generation in a way that was totally not true of my yeah. childhood. And I wonder if it, I mean, I guess it will swing back maybe or. It's hard to tell. Yeah. I, and I wonder like in, like what in, in the forties when the Kings All Here came out, which part of the pendulum were we on now? I must've been a sincere. Because it because was wartime. World, yeah. Wartime. So it was, everything was super sincere. I mean, it was all escapism. 1943 is when, you know, Auschwitz was happening. But I think, you know, it's escapist. That's why you have these big, crazy musical numbers. But it's also like, you know, sort of brushing under the table. Like the fact that Carmen Miranda is doing this minstrel show for political reasons is pretty cynical. But the movie yeah. itself is like bleeding heart sincere. Yeah. The whole idea of Carmen Miranda being in Hollywood is cynical, I guess. <laughs> the thing is that like, you know, irony existed in the 40s. It's just what was the cultural mood? You know, you know, just like the hippies didn't invent sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, all the emotional ranges we have now existed in the past. It's just what was publicly manifested. Wow. Uh, this was a great conversation. Before we go, and I can cut this part out if you don't want to talk about it, but I like to ask all my guests if you have a movie that came out post-1994. So if we were writing High Camp Volume 3, right. what one movie would you like to add to the gay camp canon? Well, the difficulty here is that, like we've been talking about, can camp exist with irony? The problem is that everyone's in on the joke now. There's no squares. And camp, I think, requires that somebody be a square. Even like kid shows, which were like the last bastion of like sincerity and yeah. like saying what you mean. There's all these, you know, references for adults and winking and grown-ups And, you know, it's just, I wonder if like we're just sort of post-camp now, unless the filmmaker is mentally ill. I wonder. Well, I, I mean, I, I think of John Waters as someone who now is considered this like elder statesman of culture. And yet if you watch, you know, you're still not going to watch Pink Flamingos or Female Trouble with your grandma. No. Like it's going to always be uh, edgy, I feel like, and, and, and always be campy. But not as edgy as it was in no, 1970, whatever. So, I mean, I remember I, I recently watched Female Trouble, and the main thing I took away from it, you know, I, I think of Divine as a big fat drag queen. Yeah. I was like, he's actually not that fat. No. <laughs> it's probably like 280. He's basically the weight of most people I yeah, know. Yeah, that's so true. Uh, and Divine was a really good actor. I love Divine. So... You reject my premise completely and <laughs> will pick no movie post-1994 because you believe just, camp does not I exist. I just, I, th I think it's too hard in an, in an, I mean, if I was a millennial, <laughs> maybe I could come up with something that's sincere and campy I that I would add, but I think I'm too blinded by my generation to, to have an open heart enough to find camp. See, yeah, I'm right on the cusp. I was, I was right there in New York in 2001 at the age of 19 when 9-11 happened. So I feel like I have both of these sincere... There's a war inside you I that's know. tearing you apart. I'm literally the oldest millennial. Uh, all right, well, we'll end here. Thank you so much, Dinah. Uh, besides doing the amazing artwork for the High Camp podcast, you what other are there any other projects you want to plug right now? Um, 
go to my website. It's nobodysweetheart.com. Uh, that in itself is ironic, but I'll explain that later. Uh, so nobody's sweetheart as one word, two S's in a row, dot com. And I'm on Twitter and all my links are over there. Awesome. Uh, so thank you guys so much for listening. You can follow me uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Ruckerbry. That's R-U-C-K-E-R-B-R-Y. I might have social media handles for the High Camp podcast at some point. But in the meantime, follow me at Ruckerbry. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Music, I guess we're calling it, and give us a five-star rating. And tell your friends, if you're interested in gay culture or camp movies, listen to the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.